I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto-steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. While 30 inches remains the most popular row width spacing for corn, plenty of farmers have experimented with different spacings over the years. A 2014 study by Marion Calmer of Calmer Cornheads showed that at a seed population of 32,000, 15 inch rows were more profitable than 30 inch rows by about $60 per acre. Alan Berry got interested in narrow rows in the 1990s and has done a great deal of research on his own farm as well as with growers across the country. The Nauvoo, Illinois no-tiller has since become a strong proponent of narrow rows as his trials have repeatedly shown an advantage for the weed suppressing system. For this podcast, Frank Lassiter talks with Barry about the various configurations he's tried, why he's currently planting 20-inch non-GMO corn, his thoughts on whether or not no-tillers need coulters, and much more. So this morning we're talking with Alan Barry down in central Illinois, and Alan is sitting at the fertilizer dealership in his pickup truck, and we're going to talk about no-till. So, Alan, tell me a little about where you're located and what your operation is all about. Well, I'm located uh, in west-central Illinois, basically uh, west of Peoria at the Mississippi River and just a little bit south. My son and I uh, got about about 3,000 acres, about half corn and half beans in a rotation, and uh, we have most of it right here in uh, Illinois. We do farm the northeasternmost field in Missouri, which is some bottom ground. The Mississippi River is on the east side of it, the Des Moines River on the north side, and some years it's on top of it. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I wouldn't want to farm all my ground bottom ground like that, but we've had it for I don't know, 15 years or better probably, and uh, we've lost uh, lost some years. We haven't got crops off of it, but uh, yeah. then we got a little land over there in uh, Kilkirk Highway, uh, a few miles where my son-in-law lives, and uh, he and I own some ground together there, and then the bulk of our ground is here in, uh, in Illinois, and our whole operation is spread over about 35 miles. The stuff in Iowa and Missouri is only about 8, 10 miles from home, and uh, good bridge, good access to get to it, so... With no tail, uh, we aren't running a whole lot of trips back and forth. You know, we go over with the planter user and plant the corn and go back over and plant the beans. Sometimes you, well, we use two planters, so often we make two trips. But uh, anyway, that's kind of our situation. Spread out over about a 35 mile area here in extreme western Illinois. And uh, uh, it's got a little ground in all the three states with the bulk of it in Illinois. Some of it is uh, good, heavy, black Illinois prairie soils. A lot of muscatine, a lot of ipava, and uh, and we've got some of our ground that's a little closer to the river bluffs. It's a little more rolling, and uh, so we've got all types of soils and, uh, and right. uh, conditions to work in. 
So you got to go across the bridge with a wide combine, some of these narrow bridges, huh? You kind of hog the right away when you go across? Well, actually, the bridge is not the problem. And we go through the city of Kilkut to get on out west. Uh, they build a, uh, put in a new bridge, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago there at Kilkut. So there's one little stretch of two-lane road that we have to negotiate for about uh, a quarter of a mile that uh, is a little tight and narrow just before we yeah. get to the bridge. But other than that, uh, the bridge is not a problem. We get into Kilkuk, it's a four-lane street, so we just there we have to just take both lanes, you know, with the white <laughs> equipment. But, uh, right. it, it hasn't been a problem, and we, try, we don't try to make those moves at the uh, four or five o'clock in the afternoon or seven sure. thirty, eight thirty right. in the morning. You know, you, right. you work around them and uh, it's not been a problem. Yeah, no more was, than our country roads. Yeah. I was in California years ago and they were talking about having to move machinery at three AM in the morning just to <laughs> deal with the traffic. So your son Spencer farms with you. He is at one time he was doing some crop consulting work. Is he still doing some of that? Yeah, he still uh, scouts uh, I think he's got around twenty thousand acres that mm-hmm. uh the uh, of corn soybean ground that he, he scouts and does consulting work with the farmers on. And uh, he's been doing that. Uh, that He started with a, a friend of mine who developed the business back in the 1980 era when it was pretty new. And uh, Spencer, I think, uh, started scouting in about 84 or 5. Sure. A freshman or sophomore in high school. And wow. Then, then uh, in 1992, he ended up buying the business because the owner had developed cancer and uh, and uh, ended up passing away, and Spencer took over the business. So he's had that business for 30 years, and you know he's 50 years old and had his business wow. for 30 years. And so anyhow, it doesn't work out too bad. Usually, you know, he's around for corn planting and bean planting. If we get late by late May, he's starting to get busy scouting for cutworms or whatever, but uh, it, it's worked out pretty good. And of course, that works pretty well done by middle of August, whenever the fungicide season ends. And so, uh, you know, spring and fall, he's pretty available. So here's a question for you. With all his crop consulting work, are you on the tail end of the business when it comes to looking at your own fields? <laughs> uh, well, I leave a lot of it up to him. He makes a lot of the the decisions, uh, you know, uh, of course, I was in the fertilizer business full time uh, back in the uh, 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And I started farming a little for myself there as my dad was retiring, and I bought a farm or two and whatnot in the uh, early 70s, and uh, and even bought a little bit in the 80s. It didn't uh, look very good for a while, but then, now that's turned out not bad. Yeah bad investment but uh so anyway i've uh and i still have my finger in the pie a little bit here we sold our fertilizer business then me and the two partners i had in the mid 1980s we sold our business to uh crop production services which is now nutrient and so i still do a little bit of commission sales work with a few old accounts that i've had and dealt sure. with for about 50 or 60 years right. Good. You talked about your location and the, the town is, I can't pronounce it, so I'm going to let you pronounce it. Nauvoo, N-A-U-V-O-O. Describe why it's a historical town for our listeners. Well, back in the 1830s, Joseph Smith was getting a group of followers together and eventually founded the Mormon religion. And uh, him and his group... Uh, uh, we're in, uh, I think they started around Palmyra, New York, then they went to Kirkland, Ohio, and then the group went into uh, western Missouri, out of the St. Joe area, and uh, then they 
were forced to leave there politically. They got into some issues, and they came to Quincy, Illinois, and uh, ventured north to Nauvoo, which is 40 miles north of Quincy, right on the river, and uh, purchased a little town there in uh, about 1838 or so, seven or eight, and uh, the religion, the Mormon religion, then really took off, and uh, in the 1840s, Nauvoo, I've been told, was bigger than Chicago. Wow. At, at that point in time. And uh, Joseph Smith was running for president in, in the U.S. He was going to be a candidate in uh, 1844, I believe it was. And uh, anyway, he was getting a lot of political power here in western Illinois and in the state as a whole. Uh, and. Uh, was moving along, and then they kind of stepped over the boundary, I guess. Some of them did, and, and they, you'd have to study the Mormon religion and, and what all happened. I mean, there's two sides to every story, but right. eventually he was taken to Carthage to jail, him and his brother, and the, the jail was stormed by a mob and uh, in a shootout that he was involved with, with weapons, too. Well, how he got those in the jail has always been a mystery. But anyway, him and his brother ended up dead in a year or so. Brigham Young rose to power in the Mormon Church in Nauvoo. Tensions were very high, and things weren't going good. And the state of Illinois eventually forced the group to leave Illinois. And so Brigham Young led the Mormons from Nauvoo, Illinois, to Salt Lake City. And, of course, that's where the religion is right. based at now. And then they came back into Nauvoo big time in the uh, 1970s and 80s, started the uh, purchasing uh, back some of the old properties that they had. And a lot of the old homes and stuff were still standing that they had built in the 1840s when it was a big, prosperous town. And uh, now they've restored Nauvoo, and it's the largest restoration project in North America. The architect that did Williamsburg, Virginia, is a Mormon, and he's the architect that overseen the uh, reconstruction of old Nauvoo back to, uh, you know, what it was in the 1840s. So anybody interested in 1840s history, come to Nauvoo and you can see the businesses like Jonathan Browning's gun shop was there. He he was a uh, Mormon in Nauvoo at the time. I think it was his son that actually invented a repeating rifle. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, blacksmith shops and newspaper shops and uh, bakeries. And, and then they rebuild a lot of the homes and they're furnished the way they used to be. And the big thing in 2001 or two. They rebuilt uh, the big temple in sure. Nauvoo. So Nauvoo's a little town of a thousand permanent residents, and it has one of the Mormon temples. There's like 120 of them or so in the world. And uh, the original one was in Nauvoo of this structure like, like this one is. And this is the same copy that they've used all over the world, big cities like St. Louis and Kansas City and I suppose Chicago. I don't know whether Milwaukee's got one or not, but at any rate, you know, there's 120-some, I think, Mormon temples around the world. One of them's in Nauvoo because that's where the original one was. Yeah. Many of the Mormons come back there for a lot of their ceremonies, their weddings, and uh, and other baptisms and stuff they do in that temple. Nauvoo's population of 1,000, and it's got bedroom capacity to sleep about another 1,000 people Wow! in a couple of hotels and motels yeah. and uh, some, you know, private residence bed and breakfast things. But, of course, for the last year, it's been a pretty desolate town with nothing right. much going right. on. Right. They usually get about 300,000 visitors every summer during the summer months. And uh, right. they've got a lot of pageantry and stuff that goes on. And uh, it, it's, you know, 
if you're interested in 1840s era history, it's a great place to come and view it, and it's all free. Right. Let's go back to the 1980s, and I pulled up a story we'd done on you a, a long time ago. In fact, it was 2004, I think. And you talked about Spencer just getting out of high school. Well, first paragraph in this story says, 1985, you bought a new tractor and a moldboard plow. <laughs> yep, I did. I bought my... Uh, Actually, that was my first new tractor I ever bought, and uh, and I bought me a nice five-bottom uh, variable width uh, plow to put behind that uh, big two-plus-two uh, four-wheel drive tractor. It was quite a big venture. Man, I could moldboard plow my corn stalks under and nothing plugged up, and I moldboard plowed my bean ground and nothing plugged up, and I was farming big time in the middle-late 1980s. Yeah. So what got you into no-till after that? Well, uh, John Deere came out with their no-till drill and some of the other companies started getting a lot of notoriety. And, uh, uh, oh, what was their fellow's name over uh, uh, Central Illinois that was the big guy with BASF in the no-till? Oh, Jim, Jim Kinsella. Uh, Jim Kinsella. I made a couple trips over to his farm on farm tours and uh, and really started getting interested, and then I got to looking at our road ditches. Over spring, our road ditches was full of dirt. We had mm-hmm. to clean the road ditches every couple, three years to keep, so we could drain water off of the prairie. And, uh, and we got a little bit concerned about all that dirt blowing around and uh, in the machine sheds and everywhere else. So I started, uh, I hired a neighbor to no-till plant some beans for me, I think, in about 1991. Well, the darn things yielded just as good as the ones that I had moldboarded the corn stalks under the year before. <laughs> it didn't take me too long to figure out that all I was doing was putting hours on my tractor and wearing out steel and uh, burning fuel, and uh, I didn't need to do that. So right. uh, we quit plowing our corn stalks under. And two or three or four years later, we ventured into a little bit of no-tilling some corn in the bean stubble, and, and then it just kind of grew after that. And, you know, by uh, it took me till about 2000 probably to where I pretty much had parked the field cultivators and the tillage tools, and and uh, now I've still got some of that stuff sitting in the machine shed, but it's older, smaller stuff, and we only get it out if we tile a field and got to work down tile lines a little bit, or sure. buy a new farm and got to do some, you know, construction of waterways and dry dams and some of that work, but. Uh, Anyway, that's kind of how our, our history was of how we moved into no-till, starting basically after the year 2000, moving into it pretty good. Yeah. So what are you using for planters today? What model, what row, et cetera? Well, we got involved. I also got involved with Marion Calmer back in about 1996 or seven. And I know you're well attended well sure. and I've featured a lot of his uh, information over the years. But at any rate... Got interested in the 15-inch narrow-row corn, so in 1996, we planted some. In 97, we built a 15-inch uh, row corn head uh, using Marion's uh, design and parts and uh, and then continued on with a lot of 15-inch corn for several years and uh, seemed pretty pleased with it. In the no-till, it seemed to be working pretty good. You get that quicker shading, you get your ground uh, covered for better weed control and so forth, and... Then we rented some of this bottom ground in about 2005 or six down there in Missouri. That needed side-dressed nitrogen on it because a lot of times it would flood in late April and May, and we didn't get it planted until 
later, and uh, so we would side dress our nitrogen. We didn't want to risk uh, putting it on till you know, close to the 1st of June. Right. And uh, the 15-inch rows are a little tough to side dress, so we went to wide rows. Then we bought a 20-inch corn planter, and uh, we had a, had a Kinsey... Uh, 30-inch with splitters that planted uh, 15-inch uh, beans, and then we had the 20-inch uh, uh, Kinsey, and uh, we ran both of those for a few years and then traded them both of them. Well, actually, we traded the uh, one off the bigger one and got a, uh, a Case IH. Uh, I've got a 1245 uh, it would be a 24-row, 20-inch planter for mm. corn. And we bought a one-year-old 1240 Case IH 30-inch planter with splitters to plant 15-inch rows. And those are the two planters we're using right now. Plant most all of the beans with the 15-inch planter, most all the uh, corn with the uh, 20-inch planter. But once in a while, we get in a hurry and we'll plant corn with both planters and uh, and uh, so then I'll have a, still have a little 15-inch corn. My harvesting machine is a that I own now, an 18-row, 20-inch uh, Calmer head. And I've had many, several Calmer heads, different row widths, and different things over the years. But right now we've got an 18-row, 20-inch Calmer head, about four years old. That's what we harvest most of the corn with. If we have 15-inch corn, I use one of Calmer's rental heads out of his rental fleet to harvest a few acres of uh, 15 inch we might plant. One of our farms is about halfway between where I live and where Calmer's based at, up mm-hmm. towards Moline. So uh, we'll plant the 15 inch there and then we'll plant 15 inch beans there. We don't have to move the one planter up there. And then occasionally we have planted some 20 inch beans with that 20 inch planter. So we kind of jump back and forth, but our general plan is to have 15 inch beans planted at the case of 1240. And we used the 1245, 24-row, uh, 20-inch to plant the corn with. And that's that's been our basic program with our planters. We've got yetter airlift fields on the row cleaners, so we can raise, lower, adjust them however we want. We use spoke closing wheels on the back. We actually took the colders off of the bean planter. It used to have colders, and we took them off, and they're piled in the corner of the machine shed with up to <laughs> Those double disc openers are only tapered at a seven degree angle, where most planters are tapered at a, I think it's 14, 15 degree angle on the double disc openers on the case. And then it has that leading uh, colder that leads the bigger ones a little bit bigger and it leads the, the other colder. So it penetrates good, and we don't really find any need for those uh, colders on the front of, of it. So. Uh, Anyway, that's our basic no-till system. We, over the years, have worked with and without starter fertilizers, and right now we do not use starter fertilizers. Uh, I've always maintained that the most important thing to do is to get that seed in the ground when it's ready to go, and I don't want to waste time screwing around filling the fertilizer and adjusting fertilizer stuff. And and over the years, I, I just haven't felt that, in our operation, the starter, when I went to do yield checks in the fall, ever got me any more bushels. The corn will maybe grow, look a little greener or whatever. When you're using starter, you have a row plug up and you plant, you can sure see that row. It'll be a little stunted, a little yellow for a bit. But like I say, I could never get enough yield increase by fall to pay for the cost. 
and the time and whatnot that it takes to do your work can be very costly in the spring. If you get delayed a day or two getting your crop in and it rains and then it's a week or two or three, you can pay a pretty big price. So uh, when we go to the field, we want to plant our corn and we want to do it right. And, you know, that's the job to do it that day and get it done. We just did a story in No-Till Farmer on do no-tillers need colders anymore. And we went back to a survey we did in 1991, and 94% of the no-tillers were using colders then. Today, it's dropped to 43%, so quite a change. I can believe that. And then all the you know the other planters, too, have down-pressure systems now on them where they can force in the ground and control with hydraulic and air down pressure systems and you know they can penetrate they don't need that colder necessarily running out out front and like i say our colders <laughs> they're laying in the corner of, of an old barn on one of the farms that we don't even <laughs> have much use for anymore and, uh i just uh, you know we, we took them off years ago we decided they were, were not necessary and their extra maintenance their extra weight and iron to haul around the compaction is a real big issue for us we've got some of these soils, like some of this black, heavy prairie, more gumbo-type soils, you have to watch compaction on. Then we got our lighter dirt. Uh, you get the clay hillsides and stuff. You got to be careful on compaction. So we've got a couple of quad-track tractors, and that's actually what we used to pull our planters with. The quad-tracks got 36-inch tracks on them, and uh, you know they're a big, heavy tractor, but their pounds per square inch is very minimal. And so we uh, pull our auger wagon. It's got tracks on it in the fall. We just have not yet spent the big bucks to put tracks on the combine. Yeah. The other problem with tracks on the combine, well, we do a lot of road. Tracks aren't as good if you've got a road very far with combines. But right. uh, we do use tracks, you know, on our uh, all of our work that we do underground is all done with track tractors. And the one job we hired done is all of our spraying. Nutrient has done a great job for us here in the area. And we've got two other competitors that are very good in our area. Uh, the co-op and an, another big independent, but we get real good service on getting our spool done when I want it. It's a very uh, specialized job, and with Spencer taking off and then not having, you know, the labor situation, we just figure hiring the spraying done when we've got outfits here that can do it. They've got, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars or more machines that are usually only three or four years old, so they got the latest, most up-to-date equipment. You know, we feel that we get a good quality job and we get it done when we want to do it. I think they can do it. You know, they move in with them big rigs. and They're very efficient at getting a lot of acres covered real quick. And if we're messing around trying to drag nurse trucks here and there and go get a mini bulk of this, a mini bulk of that, and then you got a few odd and end leftovers at the end of the season. Anyway, Spencer and I just feel like with our arrangement for us, it works real good to hire the spray and work done. If we're going to hire something done, that's the job we hired done. Well, that's the biggest gripe you hear from no-tillers, that they can't get it done when it needs to be done because they, if it's after a rain or a insect outbreak, they got so many acres they need to cover. So it sounds like you've got an ideal situation with these people. So let's go back to uh, row widths. Uh, what kind of uh, yield increase were you getting with corn when you moved from 30-inch to 15- or 20-inch rows? Well, there was a lot of test work being done back at that time, and uh, – so in 1997, 98, 99, and 2000, over four years, we actually took our Kinsey planter we had at the time, and we would we worked with about 35 different growers scattered all over the county. 
Mm-hmm. And we went to their farms, and we'd like to plant 40 acres. We'd do 10-acre blocks. We'd plant 10 acres of 15-inch corn, 10 acres of 30-inch, 10 of 15, 10 of 30. Sure. We used the same planter. We used whatever seed that guy was using, and we planted in whatever populations that he was using. Back then, a lot of it was 26, 28, 30,000. I don't think there was hardly anybody going over about 30, 32 tops mm-hmm. back back in those days. And uh, so the same tractor plant, the only variable was row with you. You just turned the, uh, the splitter units off or right. on and changed the sprocket in a two-to-one ratio, so you kept the population exactly the same. Then we went back with our 15-inch uh, head that we had on our combine, and our combine harvested, and we would... Uh, we did blocks. Uh, sometimes we'd do like four or five acres out of each of the 10 acre blocks. And it would, you know, go across the scales and be weighed. Bottom line was after the four years, working with about 35 farmers over several thousand acres, different weather situations, we averaged a 9.6 bushel yield increase when the only variable that we could come up with was row width. Row width huh? Hmm, and now great. in this back then, all the nitrogen would have been applied ahead of time, so there was no side dressing. Uh, the chemicals were generally back then uh, a pre-merge spray before the crop was up, so they weren't running down rows. And if they did uh, do any post spraying, that we sprayed it crossways to the rows, so both the 30 and the 15 inch rows had the same uh, number of tracks, you know, because they were crossways to the rows. Right. But uh, we had the 9.6 bushel yield increase. We had instances of up in the low 20s for yield increases. We had many times very minimal, only one, two, or three. We had one field one year that had a negative about five. Anyway, after the four years and putting that all together, uh, we became pretty well convinced that, you know, that narrower rows is probably the way to go on our corn. And, and then, like I said, we went with the 15-inch rows for a good many years, and then, then we went to the 20-inch so that we could side dress because you can get a uh, what used to be an old 12.8 uh, tire, like an old 12.838 or whatever. I think it's a 320 now is the metric number, and they're like on a 52 or I believe it is diameter rim. But anyhow, that's what we've got on our tractor that we do our side dressing with. We have a uh, 40-foot uh old cultivator we stripped down and put uh, yetter colders on it uh, every 40 inches and uh, these colders have a stainless steel tube runs down behind them and you actually run that tube in the ground about three to four inches deep behind the colder when you want to side dress so we're actually injecting our 32 percent in the ground three or four inches deep the colders are running about six or seven inches deep and you're pump pressure is blowing that nitrogen down in the ground so it's you know about like if you're side dressing with anhydrous right the nitrogen is going to end up six seven eight inches deep but uh uh, we pull a wagon then behind that and on the wagon we've got a 1260 gallon tank i salvaged off an old big a that i scrapped out years ago and we've got 920 uh truck tires on that wagon so uh, you know you take a we happen to use a, about a 200-horse wheel-assist tractor to pull the side-dress bar to do our side-dressing. And we don't aim to side-dress too much. We're, we're big on fall anhydrous for our primary nitrogen source, but we do have that bottom ground that we have to side-dress. And I got a couple of uh, farms that uh, landlords would 
kind of prefers to do some side dressing and we we play around with some split nitrogen on a few farms but uh you know overall we might side dress 400 acres of our 1500 acres of corn each year with the bulk of it being that 200 250 we got at the bottom We'll rejoin Frank Lesseter and Alan Berry in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at MontagMFG.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Somebody asked me uh, recently about where earthworms are are found and how different tillage systems uh, result to it. It goes back to no-till farmer in 1997. There was a study out of Ontario, the regional conservation authority and it showed that minimum tillage had about 81,000 earthworms per acre and with conventional tillage this dropped about 56,000 worms per acre but with no-till it would increase about 277,000 earthworms per acre. Now if you had forest land which hadn't been tilled in many many years there were about 289,000 earthworms per acre so when you look at the tillage systems, no-till definitely comes up on, on out on top when it comes to earthworm numbers. And now we'll get back to the conversation as Frank Lesseter and Alan Berry talk about increasing plant populations when planting in narrower rows. So as you've gone to 20-inch corn rows, have you upped your plant populations? Yes, now we're running uh, on my good soils. Uh, I run 42,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, on our lighter soils, we cut it back. My son, he's got actually more of the lighter ground is actually his ground. He cuts back as low as about 36 to 38 uh-huh. is about where we're running there. And like I say, on my good ground, we run about 42. So somewhere 36 to 42 is the range we're doing our planting. We probably need to do some more population studies, but uh, we seem to be happy with that, and and we just haven't really done serious population studies. The lighter dirt, moisture becomes a problem, especially on our Iowa ground over by Kilcook. Uh, That ground's a little lighter and doesn't have the the moisture retention ability that some of our black Illinois does, so uh, you know, that's where we run the lower population, some of that over there. So when you run in, when you're uh, seeding 42,000 plant population, what kind of yield expectation do you have? Well, we always like to think on our good ground we're growing 250 bushel corn. Mm-hmm. That's what we're fertilizing for okay. 42,50. I'm kind of planning on, and uh, in the end, over the years, I mean, if, if, if you beat 200 on the whole 1,500 acres, we we feel we've had a good a good year. Yeah. Uh, last year, for instance, we harvested corn on all of the ground, and it seemed like everything almost made uh, a little over 200, but we didn't have hardly anything that went over 230. Now, that was unusual, because yeah. usually, you know, our good farms, a lot of times I'll start harvesting where I actually live is a little bit of my lighter dirt. That's where my big grain handling setup is, our big grain dryer. 
and we'll start taking out some corn down there. And uh, boy, it'll be making a little over 200 bushel, 210, maybe 220. And we think, yeah, that's pretty good. Wait till we get on the good farms. Well, last year <laughs> we got on the good farms and they weren't any better. But yeah. the good farms are flatland, black prairie, flatland farms. And they got, I think, some water damage on them last year that they didn't normally get because we had some heavier rains there in May and it was cold and, uh, and and the rolling ground drained off a little better, and, and so we did not see the difference in yield. But uh, you know, I guess our goal is to beat 200 bushel overall, and if we can get 220, 230, and we've done that a few times now the last few years on the whole the whole works, we feel it's pretty good. Right. We're not raising the 300 bushel corn. I mean, out on the good farms where we're running with the yield monitor, it's not uncommon to be in fields and have a lot of places that we're running 300 or a little right. over at times on the monitor. And 260, 270 is real common. But boy, when you get the whole 1,500 acres done and get it all hauled to town, it's number two corn. If you beat 200, you've done good, I think. Right. Now on uh, row widths for soybeans, what kind of uh, boost have you got by narrowing down the rows from maybe 30 inches? Well, years ago, we was raising 30-inch beans. Then we went to the no-till drill. And, of course, most of those were about 10-inch row spacings. Right. The one I had in particular, uh, I had a colder cart drill, and, and it was a 10-inch spacing. Some guys have even narrower, but that that area seemed to be common. And then we started getting better yields. I mean, genetics were improving there in the late 90s and in the early 2000s. And, and we no longer raised any 30-inch uh, beans. The big plus with the narrower rows is uh, weed control is so much better. Sure. And that started to become some real problems with the water hemp moving in on us there in the late 90s and so forth. And uh, then the seed costs started shooting up, and it got to be real expensive when you're putting 200,000 or more seeds to the acre in a 10-inch row. So then we went with the 15-inch planter with the idea that it would be more accurate at getting the, uh, you know, the seed in the ground and getting the beans to germinate and get them up. So uh, with the uh, 15-inch planter, then we cut her back down to about 180,000 or so. Well, this darn Marion Calmer guy up here, <laughs> he started talking. He was playing with different bean populations, and he was maxing out his yields at under 100,000 on 15-inch right. rows. Well, we started getting a little braver, and so now we're down to about 130 is about where we're uh, running on most, and uh, we're starting to play with even less. As I read a lot of the data from research that people are doing, what Marion is doing, uh, you know, they're actually maximizing profits at maybe as low as 70000 or 80000 Right. Uh, maximizing yield seems to be happening at no more than a hundred. So I think we're going to do a lot of 120000 this year and kind of work our way back a little more. This Remember, cost is a big deal, and if you aren't really gaining, the bottom line is profit. Right. Dollars. It's not, uh, you know, it's not necessarily yield, and it seems like the yield is still there. So I think we're going to be content to work with our 15-inch rows and keep jacking our population back down a little bit, and maybe we'll end up as low as 100, or who knows? Genetics keeps changing, and right. uh, the weed control is certainly much better. We have a few farmers around here that think they need big corn planters, so they go buy... Uh, you know, 24 rule 30 inch planters, you start getting planters that are 60 foot wide. It's right. not very practical, and you can't hardly afford to buy splitters on those things. You got too much iron 
to mess with. So we've got some guys standing by, you know, big operators with these big planters, uh, 60 and 90 foot wide planters, and it's not feasible to, to have all that extra iron. So they got 30 inch, and it's so fast for them to get over the ground, so they just go out and plant their beans in 30 inch rows. I think most of them, if they've done any checking, they're they're finding they're taking some yield hits when you do that. Uh, yeah. These beans just need to be a little closer. We need to be, I think, 15. And I know the University of Illinois has done a lot of studies at the Milan Illinois Research Farm, and their drilled 10-inch beans always tops their yield. Yeah. But, of course, they're using more seed, and uh, it's not topping their profitability. But uh, the narrower the bean rows are, at least 10 to 15, you know, it's certainly going to be a four or five bushel yield advantage over planting 30-inch rows. Besides that weed control uh, addition you get when you narrow them down. Right. I remember five, six, eight years ago, Marion talking at the National No-Tillage Conference about soybean populations and getting really good yields with as low as 80,000 plants per acre. But even Marion didn't have the courage to do that across his whole farm. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. You mentioned uh, seed costs. Are you using any non-GMO uh, corn or soybeans? Uh, yeah, almost all, all of our corn. We've been 100% non-GMO corn now for several years, and we've we've never planted much uh, GMO corn. But the, the last three, four years, we're 100% non-GMO. We're in a corn bean rotation. One of these years, we may get hit with a rootworm problem. I don't know, but with my son and his scouting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's pretty well, and, and, you know, i got an eye on it, too. But we we haven't had a corn borer problem. Maybe enough of our neighbors are growing BT corn that the corn borer will go over there and eat right. the BT and die, and they don't get in our fields. But we have a little corn borer here and there, but uh, it's not a problem. So the main reason you would use, uh, you know, GMO corn, in, in my opinion, in our area, would be if you was concerned about rootworms. And if you're raising corn on corn then I think you're going to have to look at the GMO because uh-huh. I think you're going to have a rootworm issue. But so far here in western Illinois where we are, that the rootworm variant they talk about uh, hasn't been an issue. So in a corn bean rotation, the rootworm has just not been a problem that uh, has been of much significance. And we feel like we're growing almost the same yields that, that the best of you know, are growing with GMO stuff and the seed cost. I mean, our seed cost is a couple hundred dollars or a little under in some cases a bag. And you start buying the GMO stuff and you're going to spend $300 or and up. Right. So when you're planting 40,000 plants or better to the acre, you're only going to get a couple acres out of a bag of corn. And, uh, you know, a, a unit of corn is paying that extra hundred bucks. You're 40 or $50 in the hole right off the get-go right. for now with five dollar corn it doesn't take but eight bushel but uh, with three dollar corn it takes a whole lot more right. and then the other thing in our particular area uh we've got two big grain elevator companies the co-op uh, ursa farmers down here next to us and then the cgb people here they're big on uh, buying non-gmo and paying a premium mm-hmm Average premium has been around twenty cents a bushel for it. Well, if you got a couple hundred bushel yield at twenty cents a bushel, you got forty dollars premium when you take it to the elevator. Add that to your forty or fifty dollars seed savings cost. Now you're 
eighty to a hundred dollars ahead of the game, you could take you know a twenty twenty five bushel yield loss and still be breaking even, yeah. and you wouldn't have as much grain to handle. So right. that's been our uh, approach there. The soybeans. We messed a little bit with the non-GMO beans. You get a buck and a half a bushel premium for them. But, boy, they are so fussy about uh, making sure there's not a kernel of corn shows up in that sample and uh, and all their testing requirements and stuff. It, you know, you take the load to the elevator, and it's just much tougher to meet the requirements. And then, you also, you've got the problem of keeping your fields clean. Right. Uh, now, until we get... To, you know, we grow a lot of Liberty beans, and uh, now we're looking at the, uh, you know, being able to have the Liberty glyphosate uh, combo beans, and so that's going to make it much easier to keep our soybean fields clean. Yeah. So far, Liberty has done us a great job, and uh, and if we can put the glyphosate out there to help control the grass, which Liberty's a little weak on, and also you don't have to worry so much about your neighbor whether he's got the same bean you got if you got. You know, this year it's going to start to get a little easier in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, dicamba beans have kind of come and gone in this area. Uh, there's going to be a lot less of them this year because of all the issues over the last couple of years. Right, and right. Uh, and uh, now we are bringing the 2,4-D genetics in. So it's getting more and more complex. The guy's got to stay in touch with his neighbor and see what he's growing and uh, make sure you don't spray on him or he don't spray on you or you just plant beans that'll tolerate each other's chemistries. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we're going to have to pay attention to it. But uh, uh, beans, uh, the non-GMO is, is a tougher thing to to make work and, and keep them halfway clean and decent. There are a few growers around here that do. Mm-hmm. But uh, cleaning out the combine when you want to switch back and forth and stuff and the, all the handling equipment, it's we just haven't ventured down that path yet. We're growing some really good beans and doing all right anyway. So th- that's kind of our story on the GMO, non-GMO corn and beans. So are you doing any continuous no-till corn? I have it now for the last three years. Okay. When I was doing the continuous, then we did have some, you know, then we were using... A, a BT something so we wouldn't have the rootworm issues. But uh, for the last three years, we've not haven't had any continuous corn. Right. So uh, hasn't been an issue. And now down on our Missouri ground, uh, we're still growing non-GMO down there, and that pretty much is continuous corn. But uh, over the last uh, four or five years, it's been a year of corn, a year of flood, nothing, and then a year of corn, and then a year of flood, nothing, and then a year, you know. <laughs> so our rotation has been corn flood, corn flood. Yeah. It's just the way it's worked. Now, if we was going down there, we want to stay continuous corn usually because of the flood issue. But uh, we have grown beans a time or two, and we probably – We'll go back to growing a few beans down there. The yeah. problem with with soybeans on ground prone to flood, if you get if that happens to you in the fall, you lose the crop. If you got corn standing out there, a foot of water in it, maybe won't hurt you. You can still go harvest it. Right. If if you happen to get a bunch of late fall rains and the river gets up and happens to flood you. Yeah. So and also in your combine and soybeans, you got to have a pretty clean field to run that head over, or you end up running uh, propane tanks or old tires or logs that. <laughs> that flooded on the ground that you didn't have picked up, you know, in the combine. And with corn, your head's in the air, and you go over the top of that stuff. So right. generally, bottom flood-prone ground is better to raise corn on, probably. Yeah. Going back to soybeans and corn and planting, 
We've got a number of people now who are starting to look at maybe planting soybeans ahead of corn or at the same time. What's going on at your place? We've got that attitude, too. Uh, I don't quite go as early with the beans because we start we start planting corn here. Uh, our insurance date for crop insurance is usually the 5th of April. Sure. So right after the 1st of April, we'll start corn. And I've always felt that was a little too early on the beans on account of the frost problem. But we mm-hmm. love to plant our soybeans any time after about the 20th of April. Yeah. And uh, so uh, usually it's a calendar thing, and uh, the beans we usually don't uh, hardly ever plant any beans before the 20th. And uh, the 25th of April to the 1st of May for us has been a good time. We may start pushing that back a little bit more, but yeah, from everything I read, earlier beans, you know, uh, has been a good way to go. But then a lot of guys don't start planting corn till the 20th or 25th of April in a lot of places. Uh, right, right. So uh, I, I've always worried more, a little more about the frost damage on the beans. And I, I guess as I read more and more and learn, that's not as big an issue maybe as uh, we've put on it in the past. So uh, maybe the 10th of April would be okay to start planting beans. Yeah. For certain, because we got two planters, uh, one's not waiting on the other one. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, we can plant beans or corn, and Spencer and I both do the one of us runs one planter and one runs the other one. So uh, we could, you know, we can run them both at the same time. They can both go early or whatever, whenever the, whenever we want. So we'll probably start moving a little more towards early, even earlier planted beans. Yeah. I know uh, last year Spencer planted some uh, beans around the 20th of April, and they were a 2.9 or a 3.8 one somewhere in that area maturity and uh, they were our poorest beans right after that we planted our three eight to four maturity beans which we generally plant and they did very well for us last year but uh, our weather situation we ran out of rainfall there in late july and august and those earlier beans they were starting to mature and when we did get some rain the latter middle of august i guess it was uh the fuller season beans were able to take advantage of that and come on and his early short season beans, uh, you know, didn't make it. So I guess, uh, it didn't make it as good. I mean, you know, they were sure. 10, 15 bushel less. Uh, we were playing last year. We didn't have record beans, but we had a lot of 65 bushel average probably. Yeah. And, uh, I think his early planted beans, maybe about 50 caught them, mm-hmm. but they were just too far along before they got any late summer rain. So therefore I think, uh, we're, and he didn't have but like 80 acres of them, but we're probably going to stay more with the uh, three, eight to four maturity range for our area down here. Now we can't harvest usually any of those till after the first October. Yeah. So you don't plan on any early harvest with them. Uh, right now, I know they're paying some pretty big premiums uh, if you want to sell beans for September delivery. And I know a few neighbors that are looking at planting some shorter season beans, hoping to get them to the elevator and get the, you know, they're saying there could be a dollar, dollar and a half premium mm-hmm. because beans are pretty tight in the marketplace. And that may drive some shorter season beans to be planted. And they do say you want to plant short season beans early. So, uh, uh, you know, there may be some of that going on this year. Right. Have you looked at cover crops at all? 
Uh, I've messed with cover crops for several years as a regular attendee at, at the no-till conference. Uh, you know, we've had that uh, presented to us pretty pretty uh, strongly for several sure. years. And I've not had very good luck with them. But uh, this year, I did plant cereal rye right behind the corn planter. And it's, it got off to a good start. Because we did, you know, we do harvest a lot of our corn starting uh, soon after Labor Day with our dryer system. When corn gets down to under 25, then I'm ready to right. start the dryer and, and go pretty hard. And I'd like to have my corn all out before it gets much below about oh, 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. Now, last year that didn't happen. The corn dried on down. But uh, anyway, with that September harvest, it does let us get some cover crops planted in in September. In the past, I've aerial seeded in August different mm-hmm. cover crops and used some of the different, uh, you know, the legumes, uh, right. uh, the turnips and the uh, and the rape and some of the different ones, and as well as cereal rye and whatever. But I never could get a stand with my narrow rows on my corn. All the seed, too much of it, ended up on the leaves of the corn plant mm-hmm. and was not on the ground to get germinated. And I thought, well, now when we harvest, that seed will be on the ground and it'll grow. Well, that didn't happen. But I figured out what happens when you get dew or rain on that seed laying up in that corn leaf. It germinates. <laughs> it's a dead seed and it dies. Yeah. And, and so it's not going to grow for you later. So uh, due to the fact we just can't, with narrow rows, you can't hardly get high boy type rigs down to get anything established. And, yeah. Uh, so we're pretty much limited, I feel, in our or my situation to using cereal rye, and, and you can throw that out on the concrete and spit on it, and it'll grow almost. But uh, right. you know, if you can get it in the ground in September, early October, you get a nice fall growth. And, uh, and so we are doing some of that now, and, and I, I guess we're going to have success. I'm not sure how we measure it all yet, but mm-hmm. uh, I guess time will help. You know, figure that out. But I'm wanting to learn a lot more about the cover crops and how to make them go. I'm kind of interested in moving back to seeding some cover crops, maybe in uh, early June. You know, when the corn right. is uh, be high or whatever, yeah. and uh, get something started then. If I can figure out which ones to do, and I may do some of that this year uh, for the first time. But uh, you know, cover crops. There's a few guys around here that plant a lot of it, but Cereal rye seems to be the main one that people plant and have success with. Yeah. And uh, and maybe that's the one we ought to be looking at a lot. I, yeah. I don't know. I guess I got a lot to learn. And therefore, I, you know, that's why I read your publications <laughs> and, and see what I can learn about it. Of course, right. we have all the conferences or anything much now for the last year with our shutdown stuff. And, uh, and I think that's set us back a little bit. Well, it's interesting about how you're going to be interceding with these really narrower rows. It won't be as easy as some other people have it, wider rows. And even today, we got some people fooling around with corn in 60-inch rows that uh, lets them get a real cover crop in between those rows. Yeah, I, you know, uh, uh, and that may have some merit down the road, and they don't right. seem to be sacrificing maybe the yield loss that we think they might. Uh, yeah. A few people have heard talk about it. I mean, that's kind of going the opposite direction from what uh, Marion and I have been leaning towards. But, uh, you know, I guess uh, things do change and you always got to keep your eyes open for what's going on. Uh, the uh, the cover crops 
could start to have a lot more value, especially if we get into into some of these uh, carbon credits and some of this coming down the line where you keep that ground, something growing on it year round. And, uh, you know, there may be some financial incentives there that will, uh, that will help us too. Uh, Right. I guess I'm open to those kind of changes. So if I can just figure out how to make them work and, uh, and get some dollars on the bottom line. Yep. Maybe 15, 20 years ago at the National No Tillage Conference in St. Louis, we had a speaker one year from South Africa. And South Africa was doing a lot of work in 60-inch rows. And then somebody would argue, well, that's that's so the elephants can run down through the rows yep. without wrecking the corn crop. You are, one, you are one of only six people who've been to all 29 of our no-till conferences. So I appreciate you being loyal to us and showing up every year. Hope you've gotten some good ideas out of it. Well, I think a good share of what I'm doing today, you know, those yeah. ideas are certainly have been presented there and uh, and they keep getting more and more developed as uh, as we keep going back in attendance and uh, right. I guess as long as I can make it work, I I will plan to be there. I got to get myself now registered for next year. I haven't got that done yet. Usually when we leave one year's conference, we register for the next one right there right. at the desk right. before right. I leave, but uh, uh, I didn't get that opportunity in Indianapolis this year, so I'm going to pick up the phone and call the proper people there and, and get me re-registered again for good, next good. year. Hey, this has been great, Alan. I'm going to let you go, but I thank you, and uh, I will let you know when we get this up on the site, and you can listen to it and make your grandkids listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Frank, and okay. uh, good luck to you, and uh, hopefully it's going to warm up now. We're going to see our snows start to melt away, and Maybe springs around the corner, you know. Right. Um, so. All right. Okay. Thank Take you. care. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener question. A reader just asked me recently, what, what really is no-till? It seems like the terms are confusing. And I remember one in the early days, a no-tiller described his operation as rotated double cropping with barley, beans, following corn in a winter rye cover program. And some tillage guy would say, how are you going to harvest a mess like that? But the, some of the terms used in no-till are confusing, and that was a rotation that a double cropper was using. No-till or no-tillage does not mean a total absence of tillage. Rather, it refers to a variety of crop production systems employing reduced or limited amount of tillage. How limited depends on who you are and where you farm. But for the sake of communication, no-tillage and no-till, as we used in our publication, refer to any number of crop production systems that eliminate unnecessary tillage operations. I remember once years ago in a meeting, we asked people what no-till systems they were using. And out of about 200 people in the meeting, we came up with a list of about 15 or 20 different systems that they all claimed were no-till. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Alan Berry for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. 
Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Nettel Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.